Hi, this is Glow, and you're listening to Critical Justice, a show where we cover topics related to race, history, and politics. I'm very excited to welcome the authors of the award-winning From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. The book has won the 2021 Lillian Smith Book Award, the 2021 Association for the Study of African American Life and History Book Prize, and the 2020 Reagan Old North State Award for nonfiction from North Carolina Literary and Historical Association. A. Kirsten Mullen is a writer, folklorist, museum consultant, and lecturer whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. William A. Darity Jr. is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies, and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We certainly appreciate you dropping in. Um, There's so much to talk about (laughs) with this book. There's so many really great things about it. But one of the things we want to do is to help people who are really new to the reparations discussion. There's been a lot of buzz recently. We know it's a it's not a new topic. But as it relates to the reparations discussion, can you tell us the history of this justice claim? Well, the history is long, but it's not especially celebratory. Um, you know, we begin uh, with the research of a colleague, uh, you know, Rob Finkenbein, uh, and, um, you know, he discovered a claim in 1783 that was made by a formerly enslaved woman who was just known as Belinda. Uh, she appealed to the Massachusetts state legislature for support for herself and her daughter. And while they did receive some compensation, it wasn't really a significant amount of money. It certainly wasn't what, they, what she had requested. Um, and then in the 19th century, there had been several claims that white abolitionists had made on behalf of enslaved uh, people. One of those was Timothy Dwight, uh, who, who had a claim that was unsuccessful in 1810 and then Hosea Easton in 1837. But I think when you, you know, are looking at more modern uh, day attempts, I think we almost have to come all the way up to like the 1950s with Prince Edward County, somewhere between then? Well, I, I, mean, I, would, I would not overlook the efforts that, that were attempted in the late 19th century that didn't succeed. Yes. I mean, there are quite a few efforts that didn't succeed. But. Perhaps the most significant was the promise of the 40 acres land grants to the formerly enslaved, a promise that wasn't kept. Uh, it, was, uh, it was abrogated by uh, President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln. You know, when, you, when you're looking at sort of more of the class action cases, um, you know, or, you know, uh, initiatives that would benefit large numbers of white people. The first of those uh, would be, as I said, the um, the you know the, the proposal that the federal government put forth to provide 40 acre land grants to the newly emancipated uh, former former slaves. Um, a process that had begun actually even before the Civil War ended. Um, you know, some 40,000 households were settled on land. Uh, this is land that had been uh, confiscated from uh, and abandoned by the former conf- Confederates. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Andrew Johnson becomes president. He, within a year, literally uh, reverses that initiative, um, you know, instructs the Freedmen's Bureau agents to remove 
those black people from those properties. Some of them had been on them for two or three years at that wow. point. It actually developed and sucked uh, and sold profitable crops to the federal government. But all of that was reversed mm-hmm. um, uh, when Andrew Johnson becomes yeah. president. Some of them had actually been on the property prior to Sherman's yeah. issuing special order number 15 exactly. because there were some experiments in quotes with uh, the the provision of land to the uh, the formerly enslaved that began prior to the end of the Civil War. So and they were phenomenally successful. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't the case that you know the the enslaved people weren't thriving that they weren't right. able to living that they were going to be a drain on society. Just quite the opposite. They well, were and and they certainly knew how to grow crops. And they knew how to grow crops. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, really, really heartbreaking, you know, to, um, you know, to see this, this promise that, you know, in action was actually delivering what, you know, the enslaved, the formerly enslaved people had hoped for. Mm-hmm. And to have that, you know, pulled out from under them was just really, really tragic. Um, so then you move up to, uh, after this point, um, Coming into well, Sandy mentioned uh, Callie House, so she was a formerly enslaved person herself. Um, who, uh, at the point that she becomes involved in the reparations movement, is a widow with five children, and uh, she uh, decides to, to work with another uh, individual, uh, Isaiah Dickerson, to petition the federal government for pensions for uh, you know the Union veterans initially, but then also uh, for the formerly enslaved, mm-hmm. and she is. She, her efforts met, you know, uh, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in the black community. Uh, she was very charismatic, uh, but also, you know, the, 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 the initiative that she was championing made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the federal government had added pensions for uh, union soldiers. White and in fact, soldiers. white union soldiers, and in yeah. fact, even Confederates eventually got pensions. Um, so why not, you know, the black union soldiers and, 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 the, and the, and the formerly enslaved, mm-hmm. um, but the federal government was not interested in, you know, in her, um, her petition. She eventually uh, signed 300 dues paying members, 2,000, 300,000 dues paying members, which is incredible. 300,000? 300,000 wow. in the wow. 1800s. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many organizations today can claim 300,000 paying members. And mm-hmm. this is at a time when you know, black people didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, ultimately she was arrested for, for mail fraud. Uh, we, we, we had a, a very interesting conversation with uh, Dr. Mary Frances Berry, who has written a fabulous book about Kelly House, My Face is Black is True. And, you know, Unfortunately, some members of the black elite um, stirred in wow. the, you know, in the waters. Uh, uh, they were concerned that she was getting, you know, poor and middle income white people uh, worked up, that this was not a good thing. Uh, you know, they complained to the federal government and the federal government's uh, opinion was, well, everyone knows we're not going to do anything for black people. Wow. So anyone who would suggest otherwise must be a con artist. And so we're going to arrest her. We're going to, we're going to file charges against Callie House uh, based upon the fact that she must be a charlatan. 
Right. Because we would never, we would never, we would certainly never, you know, exert ourselves, you know, budget any money for these black people who basically made the difference in the war, really the black, the black union soldiers. Um, and, and these enslaved people who, you know, had not been compensated not only for their labors, but for their entire lives. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that was... Uh, I, I would add a significant number of the Black Union soldiers were uh, folks who had been enslaved themselves. And so there's an overlap between the population that she's seeking pensions for between those who served in the Union Army directly in combat and, and, and the other folks who had been subjected to enslavement as well. But that effort was not successful. Um, so then coming forward, there are a number of groups that uh, you know, raised the banner. You had Marcus Garvey, who included in his platform a reparations program, um, uh, Queen Mother Audley Moore. Uh, and in some ways, this is almost a, a direct line from Callie House to Garvey, to Queen Mother Audley Moore. Um, Garvey also was brought down by mail fraud charges, similar mm-hmm. to Callie House. Um, Queen Audley Moore had a much, um, a, in some ways, more visible success in that she was able to attract the attention of the United Nations. And um, you know, she also was involved with a number of, sort of black power organizations that took up the mantle as well. Uh, but she was very militant and very, you know, uh, determined uh, in her effort to achieve reparations for Black Americans since of U.S. slavery. And she does talk about them as descendants of you know, slavery. Yeah. It's very she, important. She, she specifies that this is a community that she's yeah. that, that is eligible for, uh, for reparations. And, and that's particularly interesting because she was an ardent Pan-Africanist. Yes. But, but she, she was, held those two views simultaneously. Advice about who should receive reparations from the United States government among Black people, and it was specifically those folks who were descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, some of the organizations that followed her did not maintain that view of specificity. So I'm thinking, in particular, of the. Uh, National Coalition on Reparations for Black Americans in COBRA, mm-hmm. and uh, the National African American Reparations Commission, which is also the Institute of the Black World. I mean, they're basically the same operations. Uh, and they have a view that's much more, much more expansive about who should receive reparations from the United States government. Now, our perspective is, virtually every community of black people throughout the diaspora has a claim for reparations, but not necessarily from the United States government. That's a claim that is specific to the individuals whose ancestors were denied the 40 acre land grants in the immediate aftermath of the civil war. Right, but if you're talking about, you know, black people in the United States who are descendants from the Caribbean, for example, if they're from Jamaica, from Antigua, if they're from Trinidad, um, they may well have a claim against the UK, you know, for having right. colonized and enslaved their ancestors. If they're from Haiti, uh, the claim would be uh, uh, made uh, against France. Uh, but similarly, you have, you know, black people from uh, the Congo who would be making a claim, you know, to Belgium. So there certainly are a number of European countries that um, are culpable and that uh, should be receiving reparations claims, Mm -hmm. but not all of those claims should be made to the U.S. government. In our view, that should be uh, the claim that 
Black American descendants of U.S. slavery are making. Now, it's interesting, CARICOMS, an organization in the Caribbean that yep. is um, among its many um, uh, you know, uh, programs, is a reparations program. Now, they don't include Black American descendants of U.S. slavery as eligible recipients, nor should they. Right. That's, that's exactly. really, that makes a lot of sense. But, um, but in the same vein, Black American descendants of U.S. slavery should not be compelled to include Black people from other parts of the diaspora in their claim. You know, what we have observed is that when you lump these groups together, instead of strengthening the movement, it tends to dilute the movement. And so neither, you know, none of the groups get the kind of attention they deserve. And the histories are not identical. That's right. They're not. Um, you know, uh, you're talking about one community that was brought here involuntarily, forcibly in, in shackles, and another community that they came voluntarily for opportunity. And we would say for opportunity that is, exists because another group was brought here forcibly in chain. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I want to add uh, that if we think about the diaspora, there is not a uniformity of experience either. Slavery didn't last the same amount of time in all places. It didn't come to an end in the same way in all places. If we think about uh, many of the Latin American countries, the way in which slavery comes to an end is by is with, with their independence movements by trying to get the enslaved population to support the independence effort, uh, and uh, and even then, after enslavement ends, the conditions in each of these countries are not identical either. Yeah, I think, but in terms of how the, the black people were treated, right, yeah. right. Uh, and you know, it, it comes to an end in the in the in the British colonies, in part with the uh, the British government making direct payments to the former slaveholders as compensation. So it was a scheme of compensated emancipation for the slaveholders. For the slaveholders, that's right. I mean, the, the folks were emancipated, but the 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 the, the bill was was delivered to the to the slaveholders. The point I'm making though is that there was no attempt to give so there was no there was no 40 acre land grant. Well, you know, there was actually, no actually, actually the British actually in, in in some of the uh, the former in British Jamaica. colonies and in Jamaica in particular there were some land allocations that, that took place in the aftermath of enslavement. Now, it's not clear that the British did it or, or whether it was, well, well it, it had to be. Initially, of course, they, they had confiscated all It had to be the British because the British were the colonial rulers. So, so there was some land allocation that took place. Uh, we need to learn more about this. You know, whereas, <laughs> well, well, yeah. just, just to get the chronology. Yeah, exactly right. But unlike the United States, where a commitment was made to provide right. and but it was never fulfilled. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have to pay attention to the details and the specifics of the uniqueness. I mean, what the Congo, there's a, a set of atrocities that include forced amputations. Wow. Uh, you know, and there were forced amputations under slavery in the United States, but, uh, but the Congolese situation was, uh, was one that was especially horrific 
uh, and was linked to the efforts to control the mineral wealth of the of the region. Uh, and and so we think that that's that's unique. And there's a, a a particular claim that has to be made for the nature of the atrocities that were exercised right. at specific places. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like I said, continue with that history. You know, when you come up to the 1950s, you had uh, Prince Edward County, Virginia, um, where uh, rather than desegregate the public schools, uh, the county decided they would just shut down all the schools. So from uh, 1953 to 1958, um, you were just out of luck if you were in grade school. And uh, at the same time, they created a voucher program uh-huh. for the white, uh, you know, for the white residents. Is this, is this, was this like maybe the, the first such education or one of the first programs yeah. where vouchers were used? I mean, people, you know, I think a lot of people who are proponents of the voucher programs today aren't aware that they were initially put in place the roots. as a yeah. way of reserving school, reserving segregation. school segregation. Yeah, so uh-huh. plans, uh, so-called parental choice plans, even variations on charter schools find their, their origins yeah. in the process of trying to preserve school segregation wow. in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision in 1950. If you had friends or family who would take your child in for five years, uh, your child could continue with their education. But but basically for a lot of these black kids, that, their, their education ended at that point. And uh, 30 years later, um, there, a private individual came together with the state to say, we need to provide scholarship funds for these victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, okay, you are between what? maybe 12, 13, and 18 when you are, when your school is shut down. And 30 years later, uh, these 30 years later, you are now, you know, given funds to attend a state college. Um, So, you know, how many people are actually able to go to college at this point? But there also was no, and and the funds were only available for, you know, attending college or trade school uh, a public uh, trade or college, trade school or college or university. So no one is no one is calculating what your uh, income and wealth would have been if you had been able to to finish high school, perhaps go on to college. No one is thinking about you know what your savings would have been, what your retirement would have been, what kind of lives would your with your children have had. No one is calculating any of that. Uh, the funds. Uh, were only available, made available for attending college and university. So something was done, but it was not at all adequate to the harm that these uh, individuals uh, were subjected to. The federal government, uh, Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate, uh, in 2008 and 2009 actually made apologies for slavery and for legal segregation in the United States. The House's statement or resolution actually indicated a commitment to take some sort of compensatory action. The Senate's resolution says that this is not to be construed as the basis for any form of compensatory action. Okay. Uh, so since since uh, since since the uh, the two resolutions had to be reconciled in some way, it was the the Senate's provisions that prevailed. So the United States has made an apology 
but it has never engaged in an act of prostitution. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the flip on the German case, right? Where Germany made uh, made restitution payments to the victims of the Holocaust, but never issued a formal apology. Um, and so there's only yeah. the Japanese case, right. Japanese American case is one where- Where you have both. Yeah. So also in the German case, you're talking about $69 billion that uh, the Germany has paid to the victims mm-hmm. of the Holocaust. And uh, since the pandemic began, they have paid an additional 662 or so million dollars to those wow. victims. The United States also pays reparations to uh, Jewish Americans who were harmed by the Holocaust. Many people aren't even aware of that. The United States was not the perpetrator, but um, made the decision uh, in good faith to also pay reparations to its own citizens who had suffered uh, as a consequence of the Holocaust. But yes, in the case of, of Japan, um, and we're talking now about the, about 120,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II uh, for up to about four and a half years. And- uh, uh, And they were incarcerated because of the presumption that- They must be enemy combatants. Uh, we can't trust them. Uh, of course, now there are Italians and Germans and you know other people who- uh, were the, not put. <laughs> who the war was fought against, but they were not. I mean, there was a small number, very small number, of Italians and Germans who were incarcerated, but nothing like there was not a mass. There was not this mass incarceration. Um, and uh, you had um, say, uh, Earl Warren saying, "You know, we can't. These these people are, are inscrutable. We can't tell by looking who's uh, you know who's loyal, who's not. Mm. Uh, they're not like us." And so rather than try to, to parse, you know, who's part of the fifth column, who's not, we just need to put all of them. Yeah, so yeah. We need to put all of them. Yeah, we, we just put all of, all of these, uh, these American uh, right. in, in, in basic concentration camps. And that's what they did. Um, and uh, in 1988, uh, two things happened. And this is after 20 years long effort on their part. Uh, you know, the, uh, especially the Japanese American Citizens League, uh, but and others as well, but especially that organization to, you know, first of all, talk about, you know, what had happened. Um, you know, one of the things that they discovered in their years of, uh, you know, kind of talking about, you know, what the resolution should look like in the Japanese community was that many of the Japanese American uh, younger generations were not aware of what had happened to their parents and grandparents. Um, there was so much uh, shame associated with it that people just suppressed it. And, um, and you know, there was a lot of, you know, consternation. Is this something we should, we should dredge up? Is this going to make white Americans uh, think even less of us and treat uh-huh. us worse than they have? Uh, but eventually, you know, they were persuaded that, yes, we need the American people to know that, that we were treated unconstitutionally that there was never even a single case um, of disloyalty that was proven, uh, that there was absolutely no reason, you know, other than racism and hysteria and lack of leadership really in the federal government that this occurred in the first place. And I think eventually uh, significant numbers of members of the community became uh, convinced that yes, we need America to know that we were ill-treated by our government 
and we didn't deserve it. And we should, um, you know, we should be compensated in some way. Uh, but an apology was very, very, very much a part of what the community wanted. And in fact, that's what occurred. Uh, so I, get, I think they went through maybe at least three different presidents over the course of the push, the formal push for reparations. And so it was finally Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. who, um, uh, task it was to issue the apology. And uh, also under his watch, they began making the payments, uh, uniform payments of $20,000 for every victim, every living victim of uh, the Japanese American incarceration. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there, there are a number of groups that have come forth to talk about what reparations could look like now. Uh, mm-hmm. We've not had another group make a formal uh, on the on behalf of Black Americans. Another group has made uh, sort of a formal sort of class. Excuse me, there are who have called for it, but there's no um, no other petition, no other formal proposal. Well, and, and we are convinced that uh, uh, the, the process of trying to obtain reparations by going the judicial route is, uh, is, a, is, is probably a blind alley. Uh, and so we think that, um, uh, that this is something that must be congressionally mandated, executed by the federal government under congressional legislation. And that's where the demand for a specific program of reparations should be lodged. Uh, And that's for two reasons. Uh, One reason is the federal government is the only level of government that actually has the capacity to to fund uh, an appropriately sized reparation Mm -hmm. program for black American descendants of US slavery. Um, the, uh, the bill that we think is suitable is at least 11 to $12 trillion, which would be the amount that would be required to eliminate the racial wealth gap in the United States. And we focus on the racial gap because we think it's the best cumulative intergenerational indicator of, uh, of, of the effects of white supremacy in the United mm-hmm. States. The, it's the best economic indicator. Uh, and the federal government can do that. It's pretty evident that the federal government can spend enormous sums of money overnight. We just saw that, that we just saw that last with, year. With so. response to the pandemic, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if we're talking about state and local governments, their combined budgets amount to less than three and a half trillion dollars. And so uh, they would have to essentially use their entire uh, entire budgets for four consecutive years to get into the vicinity of having an amount that would be adequate to meet the uh, to meet the reparations debt. And you know that's obviously not feasible. So the federal government is the capable party. It's also the culpable party uh, because. If we think about the history of policies that have been pursued in the United States, whether we start with the the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40 acres, uh, whether we think about uh, the Homestead Act of 1862, which provided 160 acre land grants to one and a half million white families uh, in the Western territories as the nation completed its uh, it's, it's colonial settler project. 
whether we think about the waves of a hundred massacres or so that took place that were conducted by white terrorists that cost black people their right. own, but also resulted in the appropriation and seizure of black owned property. Federal government did nothing about this. It virtually sanctioned them. Mm-hmm. These, these massacres and also in some cases was relatively complicit in the massacres in terms of the provision of the arms that were used by the white terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then in the 20th century, when the federal government moves away from uh, focusing on asset building through land, uh, land promotion to asset building by supporting home buying, the types of policies that the government pursued were discriminatory. They were intensely discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And they supported home buying by white Americans. So they, to some degree, supported business development by white Americans while not doing the same for black Americans. Also, at one point in Mississippi in the 1940s, uh, over 3,900 white veterans received the GI Bill benefit, and only two black veterans received the benefit. Yeah, the benefit that's that's involved with home buying. Yeah. If Black uh, veterans did receive the GI Bill, they were far more likely to receive the benefit for education than for either the purchase of a home or a business or a farm. I mean, the government was just not, and these local governments were not interested in helping Black veterans build wealth. We we obviously are are deep uh, advocates of education. Yeah, (laughs) you're right. but it's it's there. One of the ironies of this whole uh, record is the fact that that seems to be the thing that people turn to as the solution to the. It's wealth. the first thing, absolutely. I see that so much, but so many times. Throw scholarships at this problem. Uh, the, the difficulty is that uh, educational attainment is not really closely associated with reducing the racial wealth gap. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the statistic that, that, that we always throw out, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty damning statistic, which is uh, black heads of household with a college degree have two thirds of the net worth of white heads of household who never finished high school. So- uh, I, I'll tell you, <laughs> I shared that stat with a friend and a group of friends who were willing to humor me on it and they could not believe it. They thought that, they were like, are you sure that you're talking about people who never got a high school diploma? And I was like, yes, I am. Yes, never and when got you start it. to put numbers with things, people's minds are blown. And so I really appreciate you guys putting numbers around that because yeah. it's shocking. So, you know, by all means, people should get more education, but let's not pretend that this is going to be a solution to racial wealth differences in the United States, which are driven by a set of policies that the federal government has pursued that enabled white families to transfer resources across generations while denying black families the opportunity to do the same. Yeah, acquire those resources in the first place, yeah. which black people just did not have the opportunity. Right. And so I was going to ask you questions about policies and you all already shared those. So there is something I want to go back to, though, because the the issue of specificity with the claim. Right. And that's something that is covered in your book. And I love the fact that you've you've given the name of of someone who held both views, someone who was a Pan-African who also understood that there there was a specific claim 
for descendants of, of slavery in the U.S. And so um, can you talk about uh, the qualifications that you established for eligibility uh, with the reparations program in your book? Yes. So there are two criteria that we uh, establish. One is a lineage standard and the other is an identity standard. Uh, and so by the lineage standard, we mean the community of people who are descend Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Mm -hmm. So the people who are descendant from those folks who were denied those 40-acre land grants, very specifically. And then the, the, the identity standard, um, we uh, would say that these are individuals who, for at least 12 years prior to the onset of a reparations program, or Reparations Study Commission self-identified as Black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro. Mm -hmm. So who have lived you know, as Black people in the US and they are descendants from those uh, formerly enslaved Black people who were promised and then denied 40 acre land grants. Um, yeah, so these are, these, these are people whose lives have been very different had the, their ancestors been uh, allowed to leave and, and, and been protected, let me add that, because um, we certainly know that there were individuals who would have been ready to, um, to, to, to separate them mm -hmm. from 40 acres. Uh, however, you know, you know, various ways that that could have been done, separate them permanently, um, you know, scare them off, whatever, but they would have needed either to have had the Union Army uh, continue to be enforced across the South or arm Black citizens themselves. Or, or a combination or a of the two. But yeah, yes. the Union Army would have had to stay in the South beyond 1876, yeah. probably for a they full generation of the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. There's something I saw recently as we as I'm just going to stick on eligibility for a little bit as recently as last week when you have some opponents to reparations. Um, there's talk of, you know, would you need DNA testing or anything like that? Uh, just just for those who may listen to this. Can you share why that's unnecessary in your view and, and why that's not a part of how you would uh, determine who's eligible or not? Well, so from our perspective, the issue is not, and, and, and we don't actually think that this is measured accurately anyway. Right. But we don't think it's a question of your degree of African ancestry. Right. Whether or not your ancestors were exposed to slavery in the United States. And if we can't establish that through DNA tests. We don't have access to all the bones everywhere. So what, what we really need is to be able to use old-fashioned genealogical research mm -hmm. as for establishing the claim. And so we actually propose in the book that the federal government establish an agency yes. that would support individuals in trying to establish their claims uh, by providing them with professional genealogical services at no cost to them. Um, and, and also, you know, related to this is the, uh, the, the Native American identity standard that's associated with something that's called blood quantum. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we, we're, we're, not, we're not in favor of that as something that would be useful in this context. We want an individual simply to establish that they had at least one ancestor 
who was enslaved in the United States, and that they maintain a self-identification that is associated with being black in the United States, and that they maintain that self-identification in a situation in which there is no benefit that is apparent as a consequence of holding that identification, which is why we have the 12-year standard that it has to be before people know that reparations is something that's likely. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but the idea is that it's not a skin shade test. It's not a, um, you know, a blood line, you know, a, you know, a blood purification test. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's purely genealogical. Perfect. Thank you all for <laughs> thank you all for clearing that up because I know that that is one of the things I hear so often and I'm like that's not what we're doing here y'all so thank you so much um, so in the book you also talk about a little bit about the how uh, we would do reparations how we would issue that can you explain it here uh, what reparations uh, for the descendants of American chattel slavery would look like and and how we would pay for it and all the hows that are typically associated with it. So we've talked about, you know, the, the elimination of the racial wealth gap as the target. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe Sandy said, you know, we're talking about uh, $840,000 per household is the, the amount of the gap between black and white household wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, how we get to that 11 to $12 trillion number for the federal government. Um, you know, we would like to see, uh, you know, the debt erased within a decade. Um, some people quibble about the form that the debt might take. Um, you know, is it, is, it, is it just a check, people will say, uh, to which we respond, let's not overlook the check. <laughs> the check. Um, you know, for, for every Black American, uh, every, every Black family that is descended from U.S. slavery, these individuals to receive, uh, you know, on average about 300 about three hundred thousand dollars per person, something like that. That is not trivial. You know, we think about you know what does wealth do for one? Um, you know, wealth gives you choice, mm-hmm. gives you possibility. Um, you know, you might have decided to live in a higher amenity neighborhood with a higher quality of schools. Um, you may, uh, because you have wealth, uh, have the opportunity when you need it to seek. Uh, high quality medical care. You know, I know a lot of times, uh, you know, you'll hear people say, well, you know, I could go to the doctor, but I'm going to have to pay this fee. So, you know, you, you know, you, there may be a reason for you to go, but you're, you're thinking, well, if I don't have to go, uh, if I don't, you know, I'll save that money for something else. Uh, or if you need to pay for legal counsel, these are things that individuals who have wealth can do that those who don't cannot. Um, you might decide to buy into a business. We've learned, uh, you know, for the most part, people who are wealthy are not necessarily business starters. Mm-hmm. They businesses that are already successful. And this is something that one could, you know, more readily do, or, you Some know, them are given, are a, given business. a business. They carry a business in their families. Exactly. Um, but this is another way that, um, you know, Black Americans of U.S. slavery don't have a leg up. So um, it's really important, we think, to keep the elimination of the racial wealth gap come at the center. Right. But there are other ways that, that uh, the debt can be paid. It could be in the form of a trust account. It could be an annuity. It could be an endowment. 
Um, you know, some people may say, well, stocks and bonds, although I'm not sure how much people want to trust stocks and bonds these days. But what's important to us, though, is that the funds be given directly to the eligible recipients, that they be allowed to determine how they're going to be spent, not that the funds be parked with some, you know, trust authority that manages the funds on behalf of the eligible recipients or that the funds are going to go to scholarships, you know, Everyone doesn't want a scholarship. Everyone doesn't need a scholarship. You know, someone may want money put in their retirement fund or they may want to buy some property. Um, but again, the individuals themselves should have the authority to determine how the funds should be spent. Now you look at um, some of these programs that are masquerading as reparations, like the Houcher program at Evanston, Illinois, for example. Um, you know, only individuals who own a house currently or want to buy a house in Evanston, you know, these are Black people who can prove that their, they or their family members were discriminated against in the housing market uh, by the city between 1919 and 1969. Um, so actually, I think re more recently, they've said even, even after 1969. So a huge number of people you would think would be eligible for these funds. Um, but I, my understanding is that the fund has a ceiling of $10 million dollars and the awards are being given in uh, $25,000 increments. And they can only be used for the down payment of a new house or for repair or maintenance on an exist existing structure. So if you're a renter and you are not looking to become a homeowner, then you don't, you know, you can't use, you can't benefit from this program. If you've moved away, if you've left Evanston, you can't benefit from the program. Um, you know, and even if you are able to purchase a new home, um, what is it now? The the um, the median price for a new home in Evanston is approaching four hundred four to thirty four to thirty thousand dollars. So that twenty five thousand dollar down payment is going to go too far. That's right. Yeah, unless you have you know in your savings account or you can can liquidate you know money from your investments to uh, come up with the rest of that down payment and pay the monthly mortgage. That's not going to do very much for you. Um, which is why we say these kinds of programs should not be called reparations. They're not going to eliminate the racial wealth gap. Um, you know, the Evanston program is straight up a house, a housing voucher program. And that's, that's a great initiative for the city to have. I, I imagine people in Evanston are, are hoping, you know, that they will dramatically increase the, the, um, the budget uh, and the individual allocations. And I don't know if that's uh, coming up. I know next month they're going to begin to open up applications for their programs. So it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you think about the, the period that they identified as the one in which discrimination had taken place with respect to the housing market, you're really actually talking primarily about the impact of federal policies within Evanston. Uh, because you have a combination of restrictive covenants, which only many years later were declared un unconstitutional. You had a redlining program that was federal, uh, was essentially a, a, a public-private partnership between uh, the federal government and uh, local banks, uh, and uh, and so. If you think about it, 
what occurred in Evanston was part and parcel of the national fabric of discriminatory housing policies. And so once again, that points us back to the federal government as the party that really has the obligation for meeting this. That's a great point. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of talk and, and they're cropping up everywhere. And as you mentioned, um, the one specific in Evanston, but several places that are trying local reparations, reparations projects and quotes, right? Um, so thank you for explaining why it needs to be at the federal level, even putting numbers once again around those local budgets and how it just, it, you, you just can't meet the need. It's just not gonna come close to covering it. So thank you on that. all so much for joining me tonight on Critical Justice. I really appreciate the time that you shared and your expertise and your knowledge. We will make sure that we uh, link your book uh, in the comment section so that people can pick it up and begin to educate their peers and, and their associates as well. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you well, we really enjoyed it. I hope to come back to criminal justice. No. It's critical justice, right, MG? Yeah, it's critical MG, justice. The name of the show. Yeah, it's critical justice. It'll grow on you. Give it some time. It'll. Grow They're telling me it's gonna grow on me, but yeah. I don't have a better name, so yeah, I have like to a fungus. Yeah. <laughs> so critical justice, it is. But no, thank you so much. It's really. Thank a you guys so much for coming. Like it means yeah. so much to us.